1: Oh my God, that is incredible. (laughs) But I do think that setting out on the creative path at all as a choice, as a life choice, is stepping out of line. There aren't that many people who are born into a family or a family system where everyone's standing in the background going, yeah, go into show business, that's a good idea. For me, you know, the desire to act and to perform and to make people laugh and to be a creative was something that came to me really young. And so that was something that I was exploring before I even knew I was exploring it. And then when I made the decision to sort of pursue it as a career, you know, there was a tremendous amount of resistance. I mean, really starting as a young person, I asked, can I go to an acting school? Can I go to a professional school? Can I go to an acting camp? And the answer was no, absolutely not. You may not. As a matter of fact, in my mother's words, over my dead body. Immediately, I realized that in order to pursue my dreams, I was going to have to jump over these hurdles, these roadblocks. I was going to have to step out of line and do what I felt I was here to do. So I think that that's been sort of part of my journey all along. And then, in the ways that my music life is really, in many ways, my soul work, you know, there was certainly nobody who could understand that mission at when I was young, in my eighteen, nineteen, twenty, when I started to kind of do the footwork that became the foundation for the work that I do today. You know, everybody was just standing there looking at me like, who, "What is she doing? You know, what is this? What is this thing about community music, and why? Why is this eighteen-year-old or nineteen-year-old getting on a train and going off to do a workshop with these people or those people that were so out of the realm of anything my you know, my community, my family, the people around me understood. So I really felt like quite an anomaly in terms of following my passions. There's another road around the idea of stepping out of line that has to do with, like, making really hard choices around integrity and saying no when when you see something that isn't right. And my personal experience, and I'm sure, you know, you can just say that it's part of that question and that idea, is that, you know, when those moments come up in a life... You have to make hard choices and often you have to sacrifice something in order to stay in your integrity. And I've done that on a handful of occasions, some of them in my professional world, some of them in my personal life. You know, when I've come to that crossroads and I think, you know, I don't want to put my head on the pillow tonight if I haven't spoken up about This or that, whether it's somebody who's treating another person badly and too many people are standing by and watching that happen, or whether it's being in a professional situation where something's being asked doesn't feel appropriate or doesn't feel respectful or whatever that is. So, you know, again, the systems are not set up for that. You're not supposed to step out of the line and do those things. That is not something that is welcome and it's not something that is celebrated. But I've, you know, I've, I've come up to that crossroads a handful of times in my life. You have to have a very steel, strong core
0: in order to not let's say cower down to something that you don't feel is appropriate or right and that you stand up for it. I know I probably inherited that
1: from my mother. Apparently generations of women are like that and Perry's like that as well. I think for me it's a combination of two things. My mother's a very strong person and she says whatever she wants, whenever she wants to whoever she wants. Mm -hmm. My father was a very gentle person and a very loving person and I think that he cared about the underdog. For me, I think I was bullied quite a bit as a as a young child and I think that you know as I grew and I grew into you know my own power and my own um kind of strength as a human being which I think is a lifetime work I don't think but for myself I can say I'm not there I'll be learning that forever when you think you've got it all together something will come up that makes you feel, feel profoundly insecure but the fact that I could speak up in ways that I was not spoken up for I think that is something that fuels me
0: Community music, I know, is extremely important to you, and and really you could say it's it's really your life's probably joy and,
1: and passion of what you do. Music is magic, absolutely, in my opinion, and I was very fortunate, and I know, Perry, you went to an incredible camp that, like, turned things around, and I was really lucky that at age seven, my parents couldn't wait to get rid of us. I was shipped off to camp with all my name tapes sewn in my sweaters. I was shipped off to camp for 2 months in Vermont, and that camp was run by Pete Seeger's brother and Pete Seeger's the father of American folk music, so I was fortunate. I was sent to Camp Killelite in Hancock, Vermont, surrounded by folk musicians who were the counselors, you know. And it was an it was a regular camp so that there was archery and there was riding and there were some other you know things that that in those days in the whatever the 1960s, you know, that was that was what camp looked like, but the core of that camp was folk music. So there I was, this New York City kid, um spending 2 months uh, and, and, you know, we would sit around the campfire and these amazing folk musicians would get up with their guitars and their banjos and walk around at night and sing us songs. And that was it. You know, like I, I found my home there. I think I found the river. You know, and so from then on, first of all, all those songs kind of live in me. I have a summer birthday, so I turned eight there. I turned nine, 10, 11, 12, and I think I probably turned 13 there because I was a young camper. So, you know, I spent a lot of years steeped in the tradition of folk music. And all those songs kind of lived in me. And I thought I imagined at that age, oh, I'll be a counselor there. But you had to go through a year of college in order to be a counselor there, and by the time I hit that age, I was, you know, the roar of the grease paint uh, had me, and I was determined to be an actress, so I I wasn't going back to be a counselor at camp. However, I feel like no matter what I did after that, I was always searching for that feeling around the campfire with people in that incredible environment where there was just yeah, that camaraderie, that harmony, that music. And then somewhere in my late teens, I became really, really interested and moved by gospel music and then not so long after that by African music. And so because there's so much beautiful harmony in those traditions and it just, you know, my body just felt it and loved it. And I started listening to the music of an incredible a cappella group called Sweet Honey and the Rock. I don't know if you know their music, but you should definitely listen to them. Five African-American women, mostly from the D.C. area at that time, they performed at Carnegie Hall live many, many times. And anyway, I loved their music. I was doing some activism work in New York. I think I was about 19, and I met this woman who was a sign language interpreter. And she was also working for the organization that I was working for, um, an organization called Madre that was doing humanitarian aid work in Nicaragua. And I was like licking envelopes and putting stamps. I was doing anything I could to participate. And so this sign language interpreter named Susan Freundlich um, got this job teaching uh, sign language at this retreat center in upstate New York called the Omega Institute, which has been around for a long time, it's an amazing place. But this was the first time they ever did an arts week, and Susan was teaching interpretive sign. Holly Near, who's sort of the an incredibly well known um, feminist folk singer, the figurehead of the women's music movement at that time, she was teaching a songwriting class. Anyway, it was an amazing week. I went up there. And I had an incredible time. And the next summer, the bass singer from Sweet Honey and the Rock, whose name is Izai Maria Barnwell, was there teaching black choral and congregational song. It was the first time she'd ever taught a vocal workshop. I went, it was seven days long, and it changed my life. If there were sixty people there, we sang together for seven days. Then we came back to New York and there were a handful of people who wanted to get together and sing. And so we met, somebody found a space, we met, there was a absence of leadership people didn't really remember but I have a very good ear and I've been listening to that music for a long time and I knew everything so I sort of stepped into a leadership position backwards and that was the beginning of what you know has turned out to be this my life's work really which is to keep people singing together and to make it accessible to everybody so that it's not something people have to audition for and you don't need to read music, which, by the way, I don't, really. I barely. Um, And uh, so that it's taught in you know call-and-response style so that everybody can be a part of it.
0: You really discovered your own voice as a young child, as like an eight-year-old little girl in the summer, and that's when it really hit you at eight years old that this had to be part of, of some way your life had to revolve around
1: this. You know, I think the things that kind of plant a seed when you don't exactly know it and you don't exactly recognize it, but it's in you and it resonates in you and it's important to you or it makes you feel good. Or there's something, did I know at age eight that I would lead people in song? Absolutely not. And, you know, and as a young actress trying to, I was in a musical theater company in high school after school called the Mary Mini Players. So I used to go after school and practice with all these other kids. And then on the weekend, we would do musical theater for children. But I actually have a very low voice. So, you know, traditionally, I didn't sing like a girl. And so in choir settings or school settings, or maybe even auditioning for musicals, it was tricky because I wasn't a soprano, and I didn't really feel, you know, and there wasn't really an acceptance of somebody who sang you know, alto or tenor or like, you know, as low as I am comfortably singing. But Izai Barnwell, who really was my teacher for years, um, sings bass in Sweet Honey and the Rock. So when I went into that workshop at age 19, I was like, oh my God, I am home. Where the bass singer and the tenor singer and the alto singer is like at the center instead of in European music where a soprano has the melody and everything, you know. So anyway... I don't know. I think it's a fascinating thing, the things that call to us before we know they're calling.
0: So you, as a parent,
1: must understand, like you must encourage them. What do they do? What do they want to do with their lives? I have two daughters. One of them is 26 and the other one is 21. And they kind of grew up when I started the choir, the Golden Bridge Community Choir, which is now in its, I think, 17th year. I've sort of lost count. Um, They were 10 and 6. And... Uh, that was this moment in time, you know, when they were born, I kind of didn't want to be doing this work. I didn't want them to see, like my acting was almost like a secret. They were too little. If I went to work, either they came with me with a babysitter or with their dad. I was a super hands-on mom. They kind of knew what I did, but it didn't really mean anything to them. But my community music work is like, you know, it's, it's in the moment. It's not like I'm going off making something and then it's going to be on TV six months from now. I was in the moment with people. And I I wasn't prepared to share myself that way when I was bringing up my kids. I felt like in a way I I would be cheating on them, you know, by having all of these other people wanting my time. And then when they were 10 and 6, I was like, oh my God, if I don't do something, I'm going to go bananas. I went off and I did this incredible training in Canada called the Community Choir Leadership Training. And then I came back and I started the choir, and I started it as a family-friendly choir. And the way that I did that was by putting an arts corner in the room. And I went out and bought art supplies and crafts and thought of projects, and I I hired a really fun friend to hang out on this big tarp in the corner of the room. So all that to say, my kids grew up, starting at 10 and 6, being in the choir and watching me teach in the middle of a big room. So, so... That's been part of their life. My 26-year-old graduated from graduate school last May, and she is a social worker in New York. And my 21-year-old is about to graduate from college as a screen acting major, and she wants to act, and she is an actress, and she's also a poet, and I've tried to encourage them. Of course, it's really scary to have a kid who wants to be an actor, and and now, you know, it's that it's that kind of parental karma that comes back. I can't be over my dead body, so I have to say... But you get laughed at, right? I have to say, follow your dreams, because that's what I did. But it's a hard road, the creative road, because it's very windy. But if you're a creative person, there's so much rejection in in the business of entertainment... You know, you have to kind of either be prepared for it or not be prepared for it. But it is part of, it's part of the life is that you're going to get a lot more rejection than you are acceptance. For my money, it feels like, and I tell this to young actors, like if people have me come and talk to young actors, I think it's one of the things I end up saying is that, you know, it's kind of an accelerated spiritual path because you have to think about your value. What is your value? Who determines it? What determines it? You know, because if it's out there, no, it's not going to work. You know, it has, I mean, and so you keep, you keep keeping forced to ask yourself that question at a deeper level, because at the end of the day, when you get the, the third, the fourth, the ninth, the fiftieth, no, if you let that in too deeply and you let that be the determining factor of, of, of whether you matter or not, you know, you, you'll you never, you'll never make it. So I don't know. It's an interesting challenge.
0: Sometimes
1: i Right. Sometimes, you know, that no is just a lazy no, <clears throat> or a busy no, or a scared no, and sometimes it's a hard no. You know, you don't know, you don't know going in what that is. But somebody just said something to me recently that is so brilliant. A woman who's in my virtual choir, she's in Alaska, she joins my choir, because now now my choir is virtual, at least for, for the next little while. Um, so I have people that join me from all over the place now. Anyway, she's in Alaska, she, and she's a photographer, and, when she, and many, many years ago, her photography teacher said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall never be bent out of shape. You do amazing work, you had
0: amazing roles, and of course I'm going to focus on your most memorable one to us, because we're
1: huge Friends fans. I booked my first big series before Friends, and it was a complicated and interesting story. I was essentially, the role had been written for me. It was the first season of Ellen DeGeneres' show. It was called these friends of mine (laughs) and they were sort of kind of in development simultaneously and friends as well. So I got this amazing job in my experience, you know, and, and in the business that I'm in, you know, you go to this audition, they like you, you come back, you do it again they like you then you go there you go to you know this hoop this hoop this hoop and eventually you go to the network and the network gets to decide whether or not they like you and in my career trajectory i had made it to that point many many times and i had been rejected at the network so it was kind of like a this little bit of a curse that i was carrying that i was not the network darling and that you know so each time i would get close I would start to panic a little bit that when it came to the final moment, I was going to get booted. And I was reading a spiritual, you know, um, book I, as a book of lessons. And I was sort of opening it on the daily. And this situation with Ellen's show was moving forward in an incredible way. And I was so scared that it was going to come to the point where the people in the suits and the ties were going to say, Oh, no, we want to, you know, we want a blonde or whatever. So on this particular day, I opened up this book and the lesson, essentially what it was saying is that if you walk into a room and something is happening in that room, something negative is happening in that room, in all likelihood, you brought it into the room, that you're carrying that negative myth. It's leaking out and that people are just reflecting back to you this thing that that you actually are carrying. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know what? It's true. Because there I was, I was, I felt immediately like that little eight-year-old growing up in New York City, wanting to act, not having blonde hair, not having blue eyes, having people say to me, you're very ethnic, but we don't know what you are. Like, what are you? Are you Italian? Are you Puerto Rican? Are you this? Are you, you know, that was back in the, you know, in the seventies. Reading that on that day kind of popped the little balloon. And I thought, oh, it's true. I'm trying to trick everybody into believing in me before I actually believe in me. I'm thinking that my acting is gonna do the work. It's gonna show them that I'm the best person for the job. But if underneath that, I'm carrying this negative myth that I don't really belong there and it's leaking out, it was just kind of a revelation to me. And I thought, oh my God, you know, like that's incredible. Like I get it, I get it. And about 20 minutes later, my phone rang and my agent said, are you sitting? And I said, no, and she said, well, sit down. I sat down and she said, you just got the job. And I said, what? And she said, the, you know, these friends of mine, you just got the job. And I said, but I didn't go to the network. And she said, yeah, you don't have to go. It was this crazy moment where I bypassed the network. However, that doesn't always work well in the long run. And so when they started firing people from that show, they fired me first. And that was the first time I'd ever been publicly fired from something that was obviously going to be a massive juggernaut of a hit. And I was very humiliated. and I was very hurt. And I was very afraid. I thought, it's over for me, you know? And I went home and I licked my wounds and I went to this meeting and where this person who who wrote the book I was reading was giving a lecture and I and 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 a gentleman stood up and he said I just lost my job and he told a story a hard hardship story and he was an adult with a lot of responsibilities and and I thought well if he can stand up and do that then I can stand up and do that so I stood up and I said I just got fired you know and I, I, I think I cried and I talked about what happened and she said, I don't know you that well, but I think I know what I know about you is that you like helping people. And how do you expect to help people if you haven't experienced what 90% of the population experiences in a lifetime? And so I thought, okay, well, there's a new way to look at, you know, getting fired. And then shortly after the friends audition appeared on my fax machine. And you know, when I look back at it, being fired from that job was basically like being pushed out of an airplane without a parachute. And I lived. You know, I got up out of the ashes and I survived. And what it did for me was it liberated me from being afraid. Along comes the Friends audition. Had I ever played this girl before? In Hollywood? No. Could I have done it? Yes. A million times over. I know very, very well. But I had been afraid in a way to play her. You know, I wanted everybody to see my versatility, right. <laughs> all the things I could be. But anyway, now I was free. Now Janice came across the fax machine. The audition scene was like, you know, the mix and match, moose and squirrel. You can wear the bullwinkle socks. And, I, and immediately I knew who she was. And immediately I knew what I wanted to do with her. And, I, and actually, did I think I was going to get the job? I had no idea. I just thought I was going to go have some fun. I was going to laugh. I was going to make them laugh, whoever they were. I didn't even, you know, all those pieces were, the dots weren't connected. I just went, I showed up. And uh, it turned into 10 years of work. Favorite
0: role ever playing in all
1: your Favorite role. Well, I have to say, Janice. I mean, she wins. You know, I not only did I love, love playing her, the writing was fantastic, um, the cast was. Unbelievable. So being part of that, you know, when I started on that show, nobody, you know, I mean, I think they all knew it was going to be a huge hit, but you know, nobody'd seen it yet. So it wasn't like I'd walked into it in season two. I was there, I think probably, I don't know, maybe like the fourth episode or something like that is my first episode. So really it was just about being in this incredible ensemble in a great working environment. I mean, fantastic working environment. They, everybody had a good time. It was fun. They let us, you know, they let us play around to, to make things work in a way like they'd give us, if we wanted to change something or try something, they'd let us do it. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of freedom of expression and creativity. And, and, you know, I loved the people. I loved, I just loved the job. And I, you know, I've I've been very fortunate because I've been on a lot of really good shows and I've, I've had a really good time. But, you know, Janice can't be beat. And
0: curb your enthusiasm you
1: are on also, right?
0: There's, is there no script for that? They
1: just give you a general idea and you go with it? No, it's funny because um, that I loved being on that show, by the way. At the end of that episode, all I was thinking was, please bring me back, please bring me back. Like I, just, I didn't want to leave that set. We had so much fun. But when I went to audition for that show, I was given a tiny little strip of paper, a literal tiny strip of paper, and it said, Wife of Larry's golf buddy, says LOL that's all it said wife of Larry's golf buddy says LOL like okie dokie now I knew that they told me that before I went and I understood that she used text talk so I had at that time what however long ago that was I went to my kids and I got more text talk so you know my younger told me what FML means my life. I used it in my in my audition with Larry. It was an improvised audition and he he you know I just had to roll with it. And then when he criticized me for saying LOL in the improvised audition, I used FML to fight with him. And I said, you know, oh really? Are you really gonna say, you know, well you know what? And I so I used I used it in that way. That's probably what got me the job. But I did work with Larry years ago on Seinfeld. And mm-hmm. That was like my first return, or it was really my kind of my first job in in the sitcom land. And it just reminded me how much I love making people laugh. So it really kind of brought me back to following that path um, pretty clearly. And um, when we were doing Curb Your Enthusiasm, we were in the makeup trailer and Larry was next to me. And they were, you know, doing my hair and makeup, but they were doing his hair and makeup. And he just said, top five. And I said, I said what? And he said, top five. And I thought, God, I don't know what he's talking about, but I feel like such an idiot if I ask again, what, you know, if the third time, what, what top five what? And he said, your Seinfeld episode, top five. So apparently that, that, episode of Seinfeld that I'm on is considered one of the top five. Yeah. So I've, I've had, a have had a good career. I've, I've really enjoyed, I love doing voiceover. I love doing cartoons. I hope there's more of that um, coming my way soon. And, uh, and I'm also, I've written a children's book that I'm, I've written several, but I'm, I'm uh, somebody's illustrating one that I hold dear. Um, which is called Ebenezer Finds a Reason, and I will see what happens. I'm, I'm probably going to, you know, self-publish and release it that way. But, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting journey. And, of course, being a mom and raising my daughters has been, you know, most the most incredible journey, too. And it's taken a lot of tenacious patience, I think, you know, as any creative endeavor does, um, and you, you know, Perry, the fact that you are willing to kind of poke at something over and over. And not to mention, that's just getting a celebrity to talk to you. I mean, you are the, you are the, the, the poster child for tenaciousness. I can't even believe the things that you've done and the things that you've accomplished and the guts and grit that you put into participating in marathons. And, you know, I, I just, you're my hero.